Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose. We're having a great privilege, really, of recording a number of shows in a very wonderful venue. We're at the National Congress of American Indians. It is October 2015 when we're recording this show. We're in San Diego in a convention facility here. And as we lead off this uh, one of a series of shows from this venue... I'm sitting with Edgar Ortega. Edgar is with the United States Department of Agriculture. It's great to have you with us on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. I was surprised, I'll just be honest with you, because you got a whole, I mean, a pretty big team here from the USDA, and a lot of people would say, well, what's the connection, USDA and Indian country? Tell us why you guys are here. Well, the main reason that we're here... David, it's because we are here to serve the people, not only Indian tribes, but we basically serve everybody. So when we see a need or when we see an actual opportunity that the American um, taxpayers' money could go to benefit any community, we are there to serve. And we're here to promote all of our programs, especially uh, my section, USDA Rural Development. Uh, we have with us Natural Resource and Conservation Service. We have with us the Farm Service Agency. And we have also, as well, the Animal Plant and Health Inspection Services, APHIS. Mm. Um, directly, just to give you a couple of examples of what they're doing as well, them, APHIS would be for any invaded species that might affect the farmers in Native American areas. Oh, okay. They will go directly, and they will give them the examples as well to where the funding could go for any emergency uh, funding mm -hmm. for recovery of their crops. Okay. Farm service agency as well. Any time of any uh, farming activities that is going on with the tribes, uh, our specialists are there, I mean, dedicated to those uh, kind of special emergency fundings mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. uh, Natural Resources and Conservation Services, uh, like the name says, um, resources and i mean natural resources anything as well that needs to have any special attentions towards that let's say if you have several canals that would need a special lining mm -hmm. as in cement lining okay. to get the water elsewhere uh, that's where the fundies would go in I so see. as you can see it's agriculture water and especially uh now infrastructure community facilities rural utility services housing that will be my area. We're more of the business side of the USDA. Mm -hmm. So what we do is that we provide uh, housing preservation grants. That will be the HPG grant. Uh, just to uh, brag out, I have served four uh, Native American tribes uh, already here in our area. That will be the San Diego County and the Imperial County. Okay. That will be the, the uh, Ketchon Indian tribe, the Los Coyotes Indian tribe, and also the Campo Band of Mission Indian Tribes. And from there on on, they have different uh, branches out, but we'll have those main ones mm -hmm. with HPG grants. What the basic uh, idea of the HPG grants is, it'll be is that the tribal or, uh, coordinators will get these fundings, and the funding will go to each of the tribal members' individual houses and try to do some rehab work on them. Now, this is fascinating to me because I may have thought of HUD being involved with housing, 
USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture. I'm, I'm really, I'm just being honest with you, Edgar. I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. What are you guys doing with housing? Especially with housing, we have several programs uh, for low-income housings. But don't get me wrong as in low-income housing. The low-income housing will be length of the funding that would go. Mm. So let's say if some a family of five would come in with, a, uh, with an annual income of around $32,000, they will be eligible to obtain a 502 direct loan with the USDA. Really? Yes. These programs are dedicated for these kind of people that her, that their uh, incomes are uh, fluctuating uh-huh. in a sense. So let's say if by any reason their income uh, would uh, go lower by the uh, standard, their payment of the house will go lower, as, lower really? as well. Yes. We don't want people to be losing their houses just because of any situation in their lives. If they came in with a good financial plan and good credit, uh, they were able to go ahead and purchase this house. So the USDA is it's 100% finance. Uh, these programs. So the house, it's 100% financed by the uh, federal government on this one. So right now, Edgar, if I'm hearing you correctly, you are working, of course, not just exclusively with Native Americans, but you're working on many, uh, with many tribal members. You're helping them get affordable housing. You're actually allowing them to, uh, to perhaps move into a home that they couldn't afford without the USDA's assistance. Am I hearing you right? Yes, sir. You are. But I'm still mystified. United States Department of Agriculture, how did you guys get involved with that, and, and why? Like I said, we're more of the business side of the USDA. Uh-huh. Uh, when I mean, uh, President Lincoln started the USDA. Really? I didn't know that. Yes, sir. And uh, he his main mission was to uh, allocate this money and this help to our farmers and ranchers. But over the years, I mean, ranchers and farmers have been... Uh, evolutionating into more of a business side as well because they have their products, where are they going to sell them, where are they going to live, and where is the infrastructure is going to come in. That's where the rural development comes in. Okay. So the USDA is exclusively, as your uh, specialty or your department indicates, you're involved with rural development. Yes, we are. So if someone's listening to this show and they're in urban San Diego, you're not going to help them with a home. We're going to help them. And for the specific programs, they have to be, uh, we go based on population. I see. For the single family housing program, for that one, it needs to be less than 25,000 of population. Okay. That's hence the name rural development. So I anything got it. in the rural areas, that's when we come in. These are the communities that especially need our help coming in from the federal government because these are the ones that are forgotten communities because they are actually really in the rural part of America. Mm-hmm. So I mean, especially from farm la- from farm uh, labor, we go to farm labor housing as well because okay. farm labor. Ha- I mean, farm labor workers. These are the people that are traveling from places. Right. right. So USDA provides uh, developers with uh, grants and loans so they can provide them for with housing. So that's another place uh-huh. that we help the farmers as well. So as you can see, those are the little sections. No, okay. Well, it's making sense yeah. to me now. So you're in a rural areas where there have been the farmers and ranchers historically. Mm-hmm. And really, though, you've kind of opened your arms up. And anyone in those areas, even if they're not directly connected with agriculture, you still are willing to help them. Yes. That is great. So, I mean... I can imagine, because we've got a lot of rural listeners, there's people listening right now, whether they're Native American or have a different ethnic or racial background, 
And they're saying, wow, I mean, is this something that I could take advantage of? Uh, do you encourage people to, to call and explore this? Or do you want to tell us some things right off and say, well, this is not for X, Y, and Z type of situations? Uh, like I said in the start, David, uh, we're here to serve the people. Mm-hmm. I want everybody and urge everybody to call our local USDA offices, especially in rural development. I am very proud of my area on the agency because we are trained in all of our programs. If they need special help and something else, we can go ahead and guide them immediately to the to the correct place that they can call. Wow. So you gave me a list here earlier, and, of course, we're not going to give out 50 uh, different state phone numbers, but... What I gather from this is on your website, is this correct, that at offices.usda.gov? Yes, sir. This has a listing of all your state uh, agencies. Yes, sir. That is the correct address. So now you work out of California. So if I called this uh, California number, of course, it wouldn't go right to your desk uh, in rural development, would it? It would go, no, it would actually go to the Davis office. That's where our state uh, office is so located. So near Sacramento. Yeah, and that will be near Sacramento as well, sir. But like I said, if you call that office, they can channel you immediately to one of your local offices. Okay. Let's wait. Let's say if you're located in southern part of California, mm-hmm. I am the local uh, representative for the southern part of California, so right. I would guide you directly where you need to be. Okay. So if you didn't catch that, if you're listening, tuning in today, offices.usda.gov, that will help you find your nearest USDA service center. And what that will do is that will put you in touch with whether it's the rural development folks who handle things like Edgar's been talking about or you mentioned the Farm Service Agency, the Natural uh, Resource Conservation Service. All of those numbers are listed here for each state. Yes, sir. That's great. Tell us a little bit more about some of the things you folks are doing in rural development that folks in Indian country may want to take advantage of. Also, one of the most important things, and I specifically in our area, I mean, with the examples that I've seen with our people, is the uh, community facilities program. Hmm. This program helps out, uh, for example, the Indian, uh, Indian tribe community has a uh, fire department. Okay. What I've seen out on our Indian communities is that the fire department uh, for their communities is very scarce in resources as in the Mm -hmm. fire truck, as the emergency response team, and as the equipment that they have. Uh Let's say if there was a need for any equipment for that, the community facilities program would help them with some funding towards so they can get that equipment in there, either from training, from special radios, or for special oxygen tanks. That's what we we could help. There's a community, not an, an Indian tribe community, but an island uh, fire department. I know that our one of our specialists, Daniel Cardona, has helped them without with them to get a uh, an ambulance service over there. Really? So and it's pretty cool because I every time I see the ambulance it has our little sticker um just for nostalgia that, uh-huh. that we help them out to get the funding to that. Huh. And it's very I mean that's a very rural area over there in California. Well, I mean this I I'm just so excited that you're willing to be on the show. I mean, I know there's a lot of energy here at the convention and you could be visiting with a lot of folks. But I'm excited because I'm just going to be honest with you. I had no idea that USDA was involved with any of these things. I mean, I knew, you know, about 
disease outbreaks in plants or, or dealing with some kind of you know livestock problem, but never on my radar screen was anything about developing community facilities or you know home owner assistance. Is is this a common response you get from people here at NCAI? Uh, David, let me tell you a funny story. Um, every time I go out to outreach, uh, uh, I mean, from conferences to trade shows as well, uh, I tell them, hey, guys, do you know anything about the USDA? And everybody actually says, no, well, I know there's farming and stuff. Well, you know your meat? We stamp it to be right, USDA right. certified. And they're like, oh, yeah, I know USDA. Well, I tell them, we don't do any of that. But we do help out with business loans and with infrastructure loans as well. And then that's where the conversation starts out. Mm -hmm. And that's like you just said, sir. Um, everybody comes in and they start getting a different idea of the USDA and the, most of the opportunities that they, we can provide them as well. Uh, from our local folks in the FSA all the way to rural development. Mm -hmm. So... That's uh, I always trying to catch them with the uh, uh, certifi certification of the meat, the USDA so, certification. But, but USDA, don't they do that too? We do that as yeah. well. And we do as well the USDA organic certifications uh -huh. as well. Like I said, the USDA has different agencies inside the USDA. Right. Uh, so uh, just for an example here, we have four agencies, uh, APHIS, uh, National Research and Conservation Services, NRCS, uh, FSA, Rural Development, and as well, we have the uh, census, the uh, National Association of Census from the USDA's. Uh, okay. So they have like it's uh, they have all the information from farm operations, from where the funding is going, from all the crops, the new crops that are coming out. So there's another uh, great uh, information source that anybody can access there. Great. So tell me this, because you're dealing with a lot of tribal leaders here. What has made you most excited about being here at this venue? I mean, you've already given us some glimpse into, you know, people's minds awakening to new opportunities with USDA. But are there any, has anyone come up to you and say, you know, you guys have really helped us do this? Are there things that have just really warmed your heart that have happened here at this particular meeting? You hit a very specific point there, David, because there's the Campo Van Emission Indians chairman here as mm -hmm. well as the Los Coyotes uh, chairman, James uh, Chaparosa here. Uh, and they, every time they see me, they thank me for the housing preservation grant because it's helped a lot of our local folks in the Indian tribes help out with their houses. Edgar, you shared with us some great information. Give us one more time the best website for us to, to go to to tap into some of these resources. USDA.gov, uh, sir. Okay, makes it easy. That was Edgar Ortega, Edgar Ortega with the United States Department of Agriculture. We will be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living from the National Congress of American Indians. Don't go away. We will be right back. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. My name is Florence A.Q. For lunch today, I had grilled chicken and squash. I am Zuni Indian, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. My name is D. Dakota Denesosi. I turned the TV off and took my nieces and nephews for a walk. We saw two jackrabbits, an eagle, and zero cartoons. I'm from the Dene Nation, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. 
Science has proven that if we lose as little as 10 pounds by walking briskly for 30 minutes, five days a week, and make healthier food choices, we can prevent diabetes. My name is Barbara Akisakbuk Curtis. I'm losing weight and being more active. I am Alaskan Inupiaq Eskimo, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. For more information on how to prevent diabetes, talk to your health care provider. For free materials, call the National Diabetes Education Program at 1-800-438-5383 and ask for the power to prevent diabetes. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Meryl Streep. Over the years, I have played some characters you could call controlling, but the truth is there's so much in life we can't control. But here's something we can colorectal cancer. It affects men and women, and it's the second leading cancer killer in the U.S., which is astounding, considering it's almost entirely preventable. Here's how. Most colon cancers start as polyps, and screening helps find polyps so they can be removed before they even turn into cancer. Screening also finds this cancer early, when treatment works best. For me, screening was simple and quick. It was no big deal, except for the huge sense of relief you feel afterwards. There are several tests that you can choose from. If you're 50 or older, you should talk to your doctor. Decide which one's right for you. Take control. Do everything you can to prevent colon cancer. Screening saves lives. It could really save your life. For more information, call 1-800-CDC-INFO. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're continuing a series of interviews right here in the venue of the National Congress of American Indians. We're recording in October of 2015, And I am so thankful we've got more of the USDA team, more folks from the United States Department of Agriculture joining us. In particular, across from me, Pedro Torres. Pedro, it's great to have you with us. Thanks, David. It's good to be here. Now, Edgar, uh, of course, represented the rural development arm of the USDA. You're in a different, what do we call that, branch or division? It would be a different branch. Different branch. And tell us a little bit about uh, your branch. So the Natural Resources Conservation Service was originally formed as the Soil Conservation Service in the Dust Bowl era to deal with issues related to agriculture and the loss of soil to erosion. Um, As we've grown as an agency over the years, we've expanded our focus to not just deal with soil conservation, but to also deal with uh, water, air, plants, animals, humans, and energy as resource concerns. And in the mid-80s, we became the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Wow. So you guys are really dealing with some huge issues, and it it really extends beyond agriculture, right? So um, we are a branch of the Department of Agriculture. Um, Now, we uh, work mostly in agricultural settings. Uh, We do have certain programs in the cases of uh, emergencies where there's large-scale erosion that are threatening threatening uh, life uh, and or property mm-hmm. uh, that we can provide technical assistance and and use funds to address those issues. But for the most part, we do work primarily on agricultural lands. Okay, okay. So let's put things in the context of NCAI. You're here speaking with tribal leaders, with other people who may be involved in agricultural pursuits in tribal lands, and in fact, your title actually 
is, if I'm not mistaken, the tribal liaison for your branch. Is that right? That is correct. I'm the tribal liaison specifically for Southern California. There's 36 different tribal governments in Southern California um, that it's my job to outreach to and, and provide opportunities to work with. So what kind of things do you do with, with those different tribal entities? So, uh, you know, mainly the way we work is we outreach to the tribe and we'll discuss with them what their resource concerns are. Uh, now, there's a lot of diversity amongst my tribes. Uh, I have some tribes that I work with have citrus and avocado groves. Some manage cattle. Uh, mm. Some have non-industrial forest land. So the resource concerns can vary uh, a great deal from having enough water available for cattle uh, and having enough fencing available to properly manage those cattle to, in the case of the tribes with mostly forested land, uh, resource concerns associated with wildfire threat. Um, mm. Erosion is a common resource concern on, on pretty much all the agricultural landscapes I work with. Uh, invasive species is a real important resource concern. Uh, in California, we have a, a certain amount of leverage to work with tribes that maybe some of the other states don't have in that we have tribal-specific programs that address agriculture the way it's practiced by the tribes themselves. Mm -hmm. And so whereas because we're an agricultural agency, we're kind of designed to work on that traditional agriculture landscape of you know crop production and cattle management, um, we can work in an agricultural landscape that's specifically tribes working with their culturally significant plants or plants that are important to them specifically mm -hmm. for food or fiber, even though these aren't traditional agricultural crops. Hmm. Give us some examples. Oh, for instance, uh, juncus and willow for basket making. Okay, okay. Oak trees as the primary staple of Southern California tribes uh, was a, a mush made from acorns. And so you know, doing work in oak stands specifically to manage these stands for uh, better acorn production. Huh. Well, that is fascinating. So you probably didn't have any training in uh, improving acorn production, did you? No, I did not, actually. My uh, education was in agronomy, so I was really trained in more traditional agricultural crops. Uh, and um, as I'm a small farmer myself, and so my, my focus has really been centered around vegetable production, grove, and orchard management. Um, I've had to learn a lot on the job uh, in, you know, my capacity working with people that manage cattle, which, again, wasn't part of my education, mm -hmm. uh, and working in forest management. I've uh, a lot of on-the-job training, a lot of a lot learning from the tribes I work with. Wow. So you basically are on the front lines. You make these contacts with the tribes. You, I mean, they all know you on a first-name basis. Is that safe to say, or is that still uh, a work in progress? That's, that's still a work in progress. I'd say I have uh, ongoing work with about uh, half the tribes, um, and it isn't all just me. Uh, you know, NRCS is broken up into uh, different um, uh, field offices that mm -hmm. usually work with a county, sometimes a little bit more than uh, a county, a county uh sometimes a couple of counties. And so I, I get a lot of help from the, the field offices. Um, and really, my job is to help the field offices work with their tribes okay. uh, and then other specialists. So uh, if I go out to a reservation, I'll often have an engineer with me. Mm -hmm. I might have a rangeland specialist with me, a forester, uh, a biologist, you know, depending on what the resource concerns are uh, for the tribe. But it, I think it'd, be, it'd, it'd certainly be exaggerating to say that I'm doing it all myself. <laughs> So is it safe to say, Pedro, that you're more like a point person 
where a tribe can contact you here in this uh, in this region, and then you would pull together the parties that would help address some of those tribal agricultural concerns? That's correct. Um, and, of course, when you're working with tribes on a one-on-one basis, it's really important to have there be a consistent uh contact. And so I, I, I make the initial connections. I connect the specialists, you know, that are, are going to be helpful to the tribes for their needs. Um, but I also see it through and make sure that the, you know, that the conservation plan is developed properly, that their, their contracts move through. Um, I, I make sure and follow up uh, once there's projects on the ground to make sure that those are running smoothly and that the work is being completed to our specifications. Um, making sure that following up to make sure that the tribe is getting, you know, reimbursed if they have any, uh, if if we've committed any funds to the project. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I'll tell you is a little bit dizzying to me, and I'm sure it is to many people, whether they're in Indian country or or elsewhere, is there seems to be so many government agencies that may have a stake in certain issues. You know, we've been talking, for example, let's talk about erosion or water resources, and you know, the environmental. Protection Agency is going to have some say in, in some water uses, and USDA is going to have a role. And if we're talking about erosion, I mean, a lot of us think Army Corps of Engineers. Is there someone like you who's involved in, in brokering some of that dialogue, or is it something beyond what any one person does? Um, you know, um, yeah, some of that would kind of be beyond my ability to speak to. I, I know the Environmental Protection Agency has put a lot of energy into developing a, a rapport with tribes and to developing these liaison relationships. I know the uh, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has uh, someone that's a, a parallel to me, at least at, at a regional level. Okay. Um, and, and, I, and I think, uh, by and large, the uh, the federal government is getting much more savvy in, in, in having these people to connect directly with tribes, recognizing mm-hmm. that uh, as you know, as the federal government, we have a very unique responsibility to working with tribes. Uh, I know uh, some of the national forests have a liaison, but there certainly is uh, a regional liaison for the uh, the Forest Service to work with tribes. Now, earlier in the program, when uh, Edgar Ortega was with us, he uh, reminded us that anyone can easily access the different branches of USDA by going to this website, offices.usda.gov, and uh, that will put you in touch with uh, phone numbers where you could call uh, any of these divisions that we've been talking about, whether it's folks working in your area, Pedro, like Natural Resource Conservation Service or uh, as uh, uh, Edgar was working with rural development. Is this where you often point people if you're talking on a national level like this show is? Is that the best point of contact, just going to the USDA website? Um, yes, and, and again, when folks have been coming around and I've been having conversations with them, I, I have directed them directly to the, the, the phone number for their state office. Okay. Um, and then, you know, the California website is, is extremely user-friendly. You can get on it and you can find what your local field office would be. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not sure how user-friendly all the other state, because there's the national website, and then each state has their own website beneath that. So, yeah, uh, Internet's certainly a, a, a useful tool. Um, and, you know, really the best thing is to just put people in contact with the field office that they most serve. So the folks that have been here that are from California tribes, that I know what field office serves them, I've, I've you know, told them that information uh-huh. directly. So as we're uh, winding up the segment, we've been talking in broad strokes about what you do, what your team and your branch is involved with. 
what kind of people who are listening to the show right now, what kind of issues might they say, well, let me ask it this way. There's people that need to be talking with you in your area that don't. I'm sure that's true all over the U.S. Who are the people that are falling through the cracks? So I, I think uh, probably the smaller farmers are mm. uh, are paying less attention to the, the agencies and the potential for, for help. Um, they see, uh, especially the subsistence farmers, they see it's the Department of Agriculture and they think, oh, that's not me. It's very important that tribes recognize that uh, they don't need to be large-scale agriculture mm. producers. Uh, they can be subsistence producers and still pro- uh, qualify for our programs. Wonderful. You know, uh, but I, I think those are probably the key groups that, that, that uh, look out for us the least. And, you know, those are the folks that are kind of, uh, you know, they, they've got their shoulder against the grindstone and they're paying more right. attention to what's right in front of them. But they're probably the ones that we have, you know, some really good capacity to help if they could seek out our programs. Wonderful. Great messages, Pedro. I know a lot's happening here at NCAI. Thanks for taking time and joining us. Thank you, David. We've got a run. We've got more coming up on today's edition of American Indian Living, broadcasting from the National Congress of American Indians in San Diego. I'm Dr. DeRose. Don't go away. We'll be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. I'm Karen, and two very important people in my life, my husband and my father, have been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, or AFib, is a type of irregular heartbeat. People with AFib are five times more likely to have a stroke than people without AFib. Talk with a healthcare professional today about your risk and learn how to manage AFib to prevent a stroke. Visit stroke.org AFib to learn more. My name is Mira Batra. I have been in this country 32 years, and this is how I live united. America has always been the land of promise, and in my community, many families have come for a better life. Coming from another culture myself, I know the desire to become part of a community, to feel at home, and to gain the tools for our children and families to succeed. So I advocate for these families with United Way. United Way empowers them to look beyond their histories and to see what opportunities are available. We help them get involved with their kids' schools, network within the community, and when we do, we unite them. We make the community stronger. What I do is something I wish someone had done for me, and I am so grateful I am able to. My name is Meera Batra. I help families see opportunities and succeed. I don't just wear the shirt. I live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Did you know that 63% of homes contain allergens from cockroaches? And that mice spread potent asthma triggers found in 82% of homes? It's true. Common household pests are major offenders on the list of indoor allergens. Learn what you can do to help your family breathe easier. Visit PestWorld.org. A public service message from the National Pest Management Association and the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 
1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. We're talking with another great guest from the United States Department of Agriculture as we continue from this exciting venue of NCAI in San Diego, California. Across from me now is Rosa Singh. Rosa, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Rosa, you are part of, I, I mean, to me it was an impressive team to see the USDA so well represented here. And you folks have been meeting with tribal leaders and other people throughout Indian country talking about what USDA is, what you can offer. We've heard from uh, folks that represent rural development and the Natural Resource Conservation Service, but you represent another branch of USDA. Tell us what you're up to, Rosa. Well, I've been with Farm Service Agency for 25 years now, and what we do at FSA is we like to provide uh, America's farmers with a strong safety net. We're an administrative agency. We've got farm commodity, disaster programs, farm loans. Uh, we've even got a longstanding tradition of administering conservation programs as well. Hmm. So someone's coming through the booth area at NCAI. They're a tribal leader, and they stop there. And let's just say you're the only one in the booth. Maybe that hasn't happened the whole time because you have quite a team there. And they say, what is this all about? The Farm Service Agency, we've got a number of uh, farmers on uh, our tribal lands some of them are struggling. It seems that, uh, you know, with the drought in California, things have been pretty rough. What do you say to someone like that? Well, what we like to do when we're um, attending events such as this one is we really like to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with our booth visitors. We like to know what they're doing, um, what their ag interests are, what their endeavors are, because that gives us a better idea of what direction to go in in the various programs that we have. We have farm loans. If they're mm -hmm. interested in starting up a small farming operation, our loan uh, programs even include youth loans for um, youth such as 4-H uh, and FFA programs and projects. Mm -hmm. So we really like to get into one-on-one -on -one conversations to get an idea of what direction and what what each uh, individual is looking for. We have a multitude of programs. Okay. So let's talk some about the loan programs. I know some people shy away from loans because they say, well, we're going to have to pay it back. And is this really helping me? But yet in the farming industry, if you don't have some money up front, you really can't do anything, right? Yeah, it, it can be difficult. And um, with our loans, we have so many various, like I mentioned, youth loans. Another really popular loan that is relatively new, it's, it was introduced just a few years ago. We have a microloan hmm. where eligibility programs are, are, or requirements are, are a bit more relaxed and uh, there's a maximum loan rate on the microloans of $50,000. For a small farming operation, that can be, you know, just what they need mm -hmm. to um, get going with their uh, operation. Uh, we have emergency loans in the event of a natural disaster that may help um, an existing farming operation recover somewhat mm -hmm. and get through. Um, we've got... Um, um, loans for purchasing land. Uh, it, uh, these types of loans that we have, they're focused on uh, small family farms. Okay. So if someone's looking at financing a new farm operation or they get into a disaster, how competitive are the loans that you offer? 
Um, I think they're quite competitive, um, and we've got very experienced farm loan staff throughout the country. Um, so, and again, in those situations, you know, they're working one-on-one with the uh, farmer. So typically someone could get financing easier and with smaller payments if they work through USDA? Is that a safe conclusion or not? Well, we tend to um, have um, our loan rates, I believe, are, are very competitive. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes we, we end up helping a farming operation that may not necessarily be um, looked upon from a commercial lender point of view. Oh, okay. So, uh, so there definitely are options with you folks when yes. going a conventional loan route may not even be available. That's correct. Now, do you also help subsidize the loans in any way? Are there grants, or is it strictly a, a loan program? For the most part, we have guaranteed and operating loans. Um, a guaranteed loan is, is a loan that is actually handled through a commercial lender. Okay. And uh, USDA will guarantee uh, up to a certain percentage of that loan. And then there are loans that we um, deal with directly. Mm-hmm. So if an individual takes out a loan and things don't turn around, maybe there was a, a disaster, or maybe they're starting up and that fails, is there is there help available in that situation that they wouldn't get if they were going through a regular lender? Well, I can tell you that um, from what I have seen with the loans that are administered by FSA, that we will do our best to do everything that we can to help make that producer successful. Okay. So basically, when I get into a relationship, if I'm a small farmer with the USDA, if I'm getting a loan from you, you've got other departments like we've heard about in this show where you're, you're wanting to see me succeed. We sure do. And you're going to have other people, whether it's in the area of resources or helping with housing and your rural development arm, where you're going to say, let's see if we can't help you in these other ways to make sure that this operation is successful. Well, our, our uh, relationship with you certainly doesn't end, you know, once the, the loan is issued. We're, we're in this with you for the long haul because we want you to succeed and we want to help you with that. Now, when you're talking about this, Rosa, you're not just talking about it because you read a book about what you're supposed to say at the USDA. You've actually been doing this for a while. I have been. And uh, do you have some success stories that you think would be inspiring for people to hear about? Well, we, you know, we've got so many different programs that um, we administer. We we have farm programs such as um, livestock indemnity program. Mm. Um, We have uh, emergency uh, livestock programs. When I think of something that might be considered a success, it's just situations where someone has been in an adverse situation mm-hmm. and because of our relationship with them and and in helping them with our various programs, they've been able to stay in the farming business mm-hmm. and uh, continue to recover and, and produce. That's always really gratifying when we know that we're able to help someone. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the people walking through NCAI. What kind of encounters have you had? What are people talking with you about? What are their interests? We've had a lot of people come by, and a lot of them are really interested in starting up um, a farming operation. And it's always really gratifying to meet these people and just um, listen to their stories and mm-hmm. absorb their energy. It, it's just it's really gratifying to know that you're giving them the information that they need to help them um, be successful. 
And, you know, I was raised by a farmer. Okay. Uh, my dad was a small farmer. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's something that it, that is near and dear to me. And um, small farmers is what FSA is all about. Uh, we want to help the family farm, and we want to keep those farmers around. You know, it's very important to us. And like I said, it is very near and dear to my heart. And it's always gratifying to talk with these people and provide them the information that, that could very well help them on their way or, or keep them going when they really need help the most. Now, I know you can't generalize. There's a you know huge number of people here. You're probably hearing about all kinds of different visions and projects. But does it seem like among First Nation peoples, there's an interest, especially in agricultural production, that may relate to traditional values, or is there is is that an overgeneralization? No, I don't think it is, and that's one of the things from being here that I really do appreciate at an event like this because. So many of the people that we've spoken to thus far, they really have a relationship with the land. Mm-hmm. And um, I, it's just really special, and I've really enjoyed that aspect. So here you folks are really, you know, as an agency, trying to take care of the land. I mean, we just heard from your uh, your colleague Pedro, whose agency or branch started to preserve soil. And you're working with people who really, you know, regard the land as, as sacred. I Absolutely. mean, it's, it's almost like you're, you're talking with people who are on the same page, right? Sure. Yes. And uh, you're not having to convince anyone of what you're doing being important. Let me ask you this, Rosa, because a lot of people simply don't know where to start. I mean, our show is heard on 150 stations uh, from Alaska, you know, throughout the lower 48. A lot of people tune in. Many of them are in rural areas. If someone has listened to this segment of the show and they've said, well, I would love to get some funding or love to learn more about these kind of loans or what other things that FSA could do for me, where do you point them? Well, I think it's a, a lot of it is in those one-on-one uh, contacts. Um, Uh, we realize that not everyone has access to the Internet. Mm -hmm. So um, we can't just make the assumption that they can find us and and research us on the Internet. And I can tell you that FSA is always very willing to do what we need to do to make sure that we share our information with people. Um, You know, there's um, contact by... If you cannot, you know, research or do not have access to the Internet, there's... Uh, an FSA office uh, in most ag counties throughout the nation. Hmm. So we can always be reached um, by just finding where we are, coming into the office. I, I've, I know I'm biased to my particular agency, but okay. I think that we've always been extremely helpful to anybody that comes into our office. Um, we will do whatever it is that we need to do to make sure that the information gets to um, an existing producer, a new producer, someone that... Um, is not familiar and and just needs a little bit of help and direction. Um, We are nationwide uh, through most counties, so we should be, for the most part, pretty pretty accessible. So just calling a county office and asking for the... Uh, the Farm Service Agency, yes. USDA, yes, and they can point you in that direction. Absolutely. You know, I appreciate you doing that because we have mentioned on this show in the last couple segments uh, the offices.usda.gov uh, web address. And like you, you know, so astutely pointed out, Rosa, not everyone 
who's listening to radio can access the Internet easily. So simple point of contact, talk with someone at a county level and say, you know, we're needing some help. Can you put us in touch with someone locally for the USDA? Yes. That's great. Well, our time has just about slipped away from us, believe it or not. I know you have just a wealth of information. We could have talked about so many things, Rosa. But if you were to give some parting words of encouragement to someone at a tribal level, they're trying to start some new agricultural pursuits, what would you say the first thing they should do is? Well, I think depending on what what it is that they're trying to do, again, you know, if they have access to the Internet, it's a wonderful tool. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're... they're there are other ways to research what is out there. And, you know, when you come upon FSA or USDA, many of our agencies, generally it's NRCS, Rural Development, and mm-hmm. FSA, we're actually in many scenarios co-located with each other. And okay. we work really well with each other on what it is that uh, producers' particular needs are and redirecting them to the other agencies if that's the case. So although we are all under the umbrella of USDA, and that USDA is a very large department, um, there are several of us agencies that are very intertwined with each other, and we work very well with each other, and, and we're a comprehensive package to try and help any producer that comes in our door meet the needs of that particular producer. Tremendous, Rosa. Our time has slipped away. Thank you so much for your encouragement. We've heard some great things from USDA. Thank you for winding up this section of our show. We're going to slip away just for a couple minutes. Another great guest is waiting in the wings from NCAI. Don't go away. We will be back with one final segment. I'm Dr. DeRose. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. What I say, you already know, but you don't believe. You won't accept, you don't conceive. When you're inside your car, you feel safest of all. Are you safe? Are you? Two tons of sheet metal in your hands. Two tons don't run on autopilot. You have a mission. It's no collision. Hold the phone. Don't text. You're angling to be next. Oh, you've done it before. What's the harm? Just this once. There's no alarm. Got your hands on the wheel? No big deal. Brothers and sisters, you won't see it coming. You're off the road. Your life explodes. It's not worth it. Don't do it. You only think there's nothing to it. Put it down. Hang up. Pay attention to highway action. Behind the wheel, there is no such thing as a small distraction. Join the conversation at DecideToDrive.org, a public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, who would rather help keep your bones strong than put them back together. We are here to say a word about cancer. When you talk to someone who has been diagnosed with cancer, be positive. Be supportive. That's it. Stop right there. Don't start telling them about your Uncle Vern. Or the next-door neighbor. Don't be grim. Try not to disappear, either. Don't cross to the other side of the street. Don't stop calling. Don't cry. Don't ever say, you're living my worst nightmare. You know who you are. Here's the important part. Be positive. Be positive. Se positivo. Say these words. You will do great. Keep calling. Check in. Be a friend. Or be a new friend. Be a supportive. Positive friend. Smile. Try not to be afraid. Or act afraid. Fear is not useful. Be a funny, hopeful human being. If you come across cancer, let it transform you into your most positive self. And... 
inspire, urge, fortify, rally, encourage someone to do great. This message brought to you by Cancer Survivors. For more information, to hear stories or share your own, visit DoGreatCampaign.com. Do great. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose, and we're talking now with a, actually really a, a real transition in the show. We've been talking about all kinds of things that can help you in your agricultural pursuits with the United States Department of Agriculture. But now I've got a guest sitting across from me who actually is doing things that uh, could help you in many ways with a career. may not just be an agricultural career, but Victorio Shaw, a lawyer, is sitting across from me. He's the project strategist for California Tribal College. You know, I had not heard of California Tribal College before today. I'm just going to be honest with you. Why is that? Well, that is because the, the college doesn't exist yet in a physical form. And it's sort of been a labor of love for a tribe, and it's been in development now for about almost six or seven years. And we're only now starting to put it all together in a way that's uh, making it very real for natives around the state. And so this is our first time here at the NCAI, and we're sort of letting our presence known and, and letting the world know, so to speak, that California will have a tribal college again in the very near future. Excellent. So you say again, for people who don't know the history, fill us in on some of the details. Sure. Um, So there was a tribal college in California that began in the 70s called DQU. And uh, some professors from UC Davis got together and started a tribal college, um, a two-year tribal college outside of Davis, California. And... This was back uh, around the time of the occupation of Alcatraz by AIM and um, a lot of movements in the country um, and the indigenous movement in California and some of the tribal leaders decided to start a college for not only uh, American Indian youth, but also um, those of Latino heritage that wanted to attend hmm. and and sort of what happened was um, as the principals who began the college sorted to get get on in their years and mm-hmm. approach retirement age um, the college sort of suffered and ultimately they lost their accreditation and their funding uh, around the time that all these great individuals uh, my grandfather happened to be one of them sort of went off into retirement and, and really couldn't keep the, the college afloat anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it was really hard for a lot of people whom attended there or their uh, maybe their parents attended and they wanted to attend. And that was around uh, 2000, 2004, the early years of really its, its decline. And ever since then, there's been a void in California um, – in terms of a tribal college for our tribal people. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Yochadihi Wintu Nation um, that are outside of Sacramento, they uh, decided to really do something about it. And they, you know, advanced the first funds and, and got the, the ball rolling, so to speak. 
um, in terms of getting a tribal college, the idea of a tribal college started again. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was to not just duplicate what it had been done before, because obviously, ultimately, it was not sustainable. And so the the tribal leaders in the state are setting out now to develop a tribal college that will carry us um, into the 21st century and something that can really match what California is for the rest of the country. And that is sort of a leader and a pioneer when it comes to all, all sorts of things. And so that's what we aim to do for the California tribal college is to have a, you know, a cutting edge place for, for tribal people to come and get educated again. And that Mm -hmm. nurtures our culture and our history and takes all of those into consideration, no matter we're teaching math or we're teaching language or we're teaching, uh, you know, things in the medical profession, everything is going to be based out of our, our native traditional ways of knowing and doing. But also we want to prepare people to be competitive in a modern world and especially a, a competitive state like California. So what kind of reactions have you been getting here, Victoria? Uh, I, I would say the reactions are 100% positive. A lot of people have a similar reaction that you do, David, is, wow, I haven't heard of this. Where is it? Mm-hmm. What, what are you guys offering? And we explain, you know, um, we're about two years away from having um, associate degrees um, level classes being offered. Um, and in the meantime, we've been offering uh, certificate programs in tribal leadership and governance, Okay, uh, which is sort of like a five-day intensive week-long certificate program that we hope to prepare current and future tribal leaders um, so that they are uh, more knowledgeable and have a lot more tools when they go to run their own governments. So you're actually taking the curriculum right now Two tribes. Am I understanding that correctly? That's correct. Last uh, July, we had our first certificate program in tribal leadership and governments, governance, excuse me, and uh, it was overwhelming the amount of interest. and mm. And we we were hoping to get between twenty five and forty students. We ended up with fifty, and we had to shut it off. Wow. Um, and so we had a, a tribe host the event um, over the course of a week. We brought, we flew in all the educators. Mm-hmm. Um, we designed the the curricula, and we delivered an amazing week of education. And um, you know, certain tribes sent their entire tribal governments, um, their entire tribal councils. Um, there was tribal employees there. There was young students. There was wow. old students. And so, until the, we have our actual college, we are going to be aiming to. Um, host at least two more uh, in 2016 and then maybe two more in 2017 to build on the ones we already did, like a sort of a phase two. But we're not going to sit around and wait till we have a college. We The demand, the need is there to start training our tribal leaders better, and we're going to provide that. And no, that's tremendous. I mean, I th- what I think is so exciting, Victorio, is you know it's one thing to cast a vision, but it's another thing actually to be doing something. So you're out there, and you're actually – doing things in Indian country that are making a difference. That, that's tremendous. Absolutely. And, you know, that's really the greatest challenge of any um, idea is, you know, to, to come up 
with a plan to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably why it's taken us that long to get to this point is we are now at the point where we have a very solid plan in place and we have the steps laid out that is that are really going to make this a reality. And so that's why we felt really strong about coming out here and and really letting everyone know of our intentions and our plans. And uh, we wanted to really get people excited about the California Tribal College. Well, thanks for not keeping it a secret any longer. Yeah. Well, it's our pleasure. It's a labor of love. Um, you know, everyone involved is, is really dedicated and tremendous. And uh, we just really believe in this for our people. Help us, because some are listening right now. Victorio, they've heard that you've got plans 2016, 2017. You're going to be taking your curricula to tribal venues. Are there openings? Are you looking for tribes who might host an event, or is everything all squared away? No, we're always looking for tribes that want to participate. Um, we have a number of ways that they can participate. The first and foremost is um, any tribe in California, recognized or unrecognized, can pass a tribal council resolution in support of the college. Mm. And by doing so, they become a member tribe, and they help to shape the actual college. They help to shape the curricula. Um, they are there to let us know what their needs are, what, what types of programs they want for their people. So there's that. And then we have tribes that host events for us all the time up and down the state. If you're interested in even having someone like myself come in and let you know about the California Tribal College, um, you know, we'd be happy to set something up like that. And as, as far as um, our upcoming certificate programs, we have uh, Redding Rancheria has agreed to host the California Tribal College's next certificate program. And we don't have a Southern California tribe committed um, to hosting the, the one that will be in Southern California. I mean, we have a, an idea of who we might ask, but um, that's still in the works. Okay. And so anything that tribes want to meet with us, talk with us about, learn from us. We can learn from you. We're, we're, we're here. We want, we want to hear from you. Well, unfortunately, our time has just about slipped away, Victorio, but I would be negligent if I didn't give you a chance to say, hey, you're opening the doors. How does someone get a hold of you? At, um, they can go to californiatribalcollege.com. We're also on Facebook. Uh, Facebook is a tremendous way to keep up to date. And we're also on Twitter, um, slash CA Tribal College. Okay, so basically, if, if you can just remember, California Tribal College, you can either go to the website, which is californiatribalcollege.com, or that can guide you through Google or Twitter to get in contact with you guys. Absolutely. We have some videos on YouTube as well. Wonderful. Victorio, thank you for, hey, a great uh, way to conclude today's edition of American Indian Living. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you to each one who's joined us on today's edition of American Indian Living. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service.